We'll remain standing and take your Bibles out and let's turn uh, for our reading to Mark chapter 8. I'm going to read um, the portions uh, following or coming up to where we're going to be looking this morning just to uh, remind ourselves of the context. So we'll begin in verse 27 of chapter 8 and we'll read through verse 8 of chapter 9. So beginning in Mark 8, verse 27, this is God's word to us this morning. Let us give heed to it. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Let's pray. Lord, we once again are humbled by the understanding that you would speak to us through your word. The creator of all things and the redeemer of your people speaking to us, uh, your very breathed out words. And we thank you for that this morning. We pray now that you would help us to hear your word preached. We pray that you would help us to understand. We pray, Father, for the one who preaches that you would uh, use his weakness as an opportunity for your strength to be manifest, O God. And we pray that you would glorify yourself through this time now and teach us what your Spirit has for us in these words. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. 
So we continue this morning to look at the ministry of Jesus as Mark records it here in his gospel. We oftentimes think of Jesus' ministry as consisting of two two aspects, two periods, a period of humiliation followed by a period of exaltation. We think of the passage in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, that says that he emptied himself, that is, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So we see that period of of humiliation and and then of exaltation. And that two-period evaluation is generally uh, true and a good way to understand it. Jesus came in humility, certainly, uh, and suffered and died, which was then followed by him being raised and ascended and exalted into heaven. But even while he was in the state of humiliation, during his earthly ministry, we see in the Scripture flashes of the glory of Christ, reminders that the one who was born in a manger and lived among us and taught and prayed and grew weary and hungry, that this one was still, oh, the king of the universe, Almighty God among us. You know, in the humility of the birth of Christ there in a manger, that was accompanied by the announcement of his birth by angels, accompanied by the glory of the Lord shining around them. And we see, uh, even as we've seen in Mark's gospel, the, the authority of Christ being revealed, the wisdom of Christ, the power demonstrated by Jesus in the course of his ministry. And those all give us these little flashes of insight into the true divine nature of Jesus of Nazareth. He who was completely man, but also completely God. But there's one event in which those flashes become a blaze of blinding light. When the veil is pulled back for those present And for those reading the record of the event and the glory of Christ is seen in a way that it will not be seen again until he returns in glory. And that event, of course, we call the transfiguration. And that's the topic of these verses in Mark's gospel that we'll be looking at this morning. Jesus is continuing to teach his disciples We read again that this whole section which records Jesus beginning to teach his disciples about who he is and about what is expected of those who follow him. We've seen that. We read that this morning. We've said that Mark's gospel is all really about the question, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is about to give his disciples a powerful answer to that question. Jesus has heard what people think of him. He's heard what his disciples think of him. And now he is going to show his disciples who he is. He's shown it in various ways already through the things that he's done, through the things that he has taught. But now he is going to show them in an unmistakable way who he is. 
And Mark sets up this by giving us in the passage here in verse 2 a rare for Mark as he records these events, very specific time reference in verse 2. He says at the beginning of verse 2, and after six days. So what was happening six days prior? Well, what was happening was that Jesus was in this northern city of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, and he was beginning to teach them that, that while Peter was correct, as he had earlier given his um, profession that Jesus is the Messiah, remember Jesus has started teaching, and I'm sure here has continued to teach, that as the Messiah, as part a necessary part of fulfilling his ministry, that he was going to suffer and was going to be killed and then be raised. And it follows that during these six days that Jesus is continuing to teach them that. And we're going to see him continue to teach them that. Although during these six days we're not told exactly what was taught, what was done. But at some point, six days later, as Jesus has certainly been teaching them, Jesus says to the disciples, let's go on a field trip. I have something to show you. Remember field trips? I guess, do they still do field trips? We, I guess homeschool children probably go on more field trips than, than many of us who were public school kids did. Uh, they were always fun. Got to leave the school building and get on a bus and go somewhere and um, learn something. They were usually educational. And certainly the one that Jesus suggests here is going to be very educational. And even before the transfiguration himself takes place, or itself takes place, Mark sets the setting for us. He's given us the time frame here. He adds a couple of things um, to that in regard to the setting of the transfiguration. If you're, if you're taking notes and you'd like an outline, the first thing that you would want to note here is the setting. By the way, both Matthew and Luke also record this event in very similar words. Luke adds a little more detail to it, but both uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke all record this event. And the first thing in, in the sitting, setting that Mark gives, other than the, the time reference there, is that this field trip and the experience that follows is not for all of the disciples, but Mark tells us that Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Just those three, a quarter of the disciples. Why them? Why not the others? Well, we don't know for sure. Uh, we do know that, that those three, they were among the very first of the disciples that were called by Jesus, those who were called from their, their life of being fishermen to be fishers of men, remember that. And we know that these three continue to make up uh, what we usually call the inner circle of the disciples, even within the twelve. So Jesus has all of these disciples that are following him. Remember, he had chosen twelve, and out of those twelve, he, he picks these three for special audiences, as it were. Remember that it was... Peter, James, and John, they and only they were taken by Jesus into the house of Jairus when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in Mark 5. They're also the three that 
Jesus takes with him apart from the other disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus went aside to pray and to watch and invited them to to watch and pray with him as he was nearing that time when he would be arrested and that these things would become, um, be set in motion. Peter, of course, would go on to be the first among the apostles, sort of the leader of the apostles. James would go on to be the first of the apostles to be martyred, martyred by Herod for the cause of the gospel. And John then would be He'd be the last one of the apostles to die, but he's also in a special category because remember that he would be entrusted by Jesus while on the cross with the care of his mother. Whatever the reason is, uh, and it's significant that we are not told why Peter, James, and John make up this inner circle, sort of we, we learn the, the results of that, But we are told that it is always Jesus' choice. Here, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And so this becomes a lesson for us that even within the church, among those who are all equally sinners, equally saved by grace through faith, equally loved, equally dependent upon God, that God himself calls different men to different places and to different stations, to different tasks. And he does it based on his own sovereign choice. His sovereign choice extends not only to those that he will save, but also to whom he will use in this way or that way. And not just men, women too. Now remember, there are these three that are taken here to the transfiguration. But remember, ladies, that it was three women who are the first to see the risen Lord after the resurrection. A great privilege given to them. All based on God's sovereignty. So Jesus takes with him these three. And Mark says here in verse 2 that he led them up a high mountain. Now which mountain was it? Again, we don't know. We're not told. The most likely choice is a mountain called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is just north of Caesarea Philippi, where they are when when this takes place. The city actually sits right at the base of the foothills going up to Mount Hermon. Secondly, Mount Hermon certainly fits the description here of a high mountain. It rises to some 9,200 feet. It is the highest mountain in Israel. And it's a desolate place. And so it would allow them to be there, as the text says, by themselves. So those things we have as the setting of this transfiguration, this event. And the main aspect of the event that we we note here is, and this will be the second thing for those taking notes, and that is the transfiguration. It is there, Mark says, on this mountain that Jesus was transfigured before them. And this is amazing. This is supernatural. The Greek word used for the the word that we have as transfigured is a Greek word metamorpho, which may sound familiar to you. It's where we get our word metamorphosis or a change of form. And that's what we have here. 
Jesus underwent a sudden change in his appearance. Note, it's in his appearance, not in his nature. Hebrews 1.8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. As God the Father does not change, God the Son does not change. This is a, a change not in his nature, but simply in his appearance. And in this transfiguration, this metamorphosis, the cloak of his humanity that veiled his glory. By the way, we want to be clear of the fact that Jesus, when he took on our nature, he did not give up any of his deity. Not a bit of it. There's a teaching out there that says that he did. That is an error. Jesus did not change at all. Again, he is always the same. But he came and he took our nature to him. And here, this his, his human nature that veiled his humanity or that veiled his deity is for a moment pulled back. And the disciples catch a glimpse, perhaps more than a glimpse, of his glory. Jesus is seen here on the mountain in appearance in a way that accords with his true nature. Here we see the glorious nature of God made flesh. And Mark and Matthew, by the way, note that he was transfigured, look at there, before them, right at the end of verse 2, before them, that is before the disciples. No trickery here, no snake oil, no smoke and mirrors, no CGI. This happened Literally, and before their eyes. This was not a vision. This was not a dream. This was reality. The reality of who Jesus is in a way that they had never seen before. Peter will later state about this that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And Mark then goes on to explain what Peter Remember, Mark's source, main source, is Peter, who had been an eyewitness of these things with James and John. Mark goes on to explain, as Peter describes it to him, in verse 3, it says, And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, Matthew and Luke, in their description of this event, let us know First, that his face changed, his visage changed. Matthew 17, 2 says that his face shone like the sun. And then all three comment that this change in, in Jesus is so significant, the glory of Christ is so bright that it even affects his clothing. They became, Matthew says, white as light. Luke says, dazzling white. And Mark here says, radiant, intensely white. Each of the writers there trying to use with, with the language they have at their disposal to describe this unbelievable and indescribable brilliance of Jesus and his clothing even. Mark even adds here for us in verse 3 a very homey kind of illustration. He says, as no one on earth could bleach them. 
No launderer, the word is. In the old King James, no fuller. No dry cleaner on earth could have gotten them like this, Mark tells us. Because his clothes were not just white. They were not just very white. They were radiant. They were shining. They were glorious. The the words here give the idea that they are not just reflecting light. They're not just absorbing light, but they're producing light. Or that the light from the glorious being within them was not able to be stopped by mere fabric. In this moment, Jesus' glory is seen for what it is. But I think even here we need to pull back just a little bit. Even here, the the glory of Christ is dimmed somewhat. And why do I say that? Because I know that one of these men, John, will have another instance when he will see, this time a vision, of Jesus in his truly glorified state. And his reaction then is unmistakable and isn't repeated here on the mountain. Listen to this from John's record in Revelation chapter 1. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And how did that affect John on that occasion? He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So that seems to be even more powerful, even in a vision, than what they're seeing here So it seems that that even here, that though they are seeing something glorious, that they're seeing uh, the dimmer still turned down a bit, that they may be able to bear it. And here's the Christ, the Messiah, the God-man, who has healed the sick, who has cast out demons, who has calmed the storm, who has raised the dead, who's forgiven sins, and the one who says now that he must suffer and be killed, and the third day rise from the dead, and the one who has called Peter and James and John on this day to follow him, even as he calls on all who would follow him to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. This is Jesus Christ before them, as he truly is, glorious, Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And Peter, James, and John get to see that. We will all get to see that one day. Amen? Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image of the invisible God. Now, as they are still trying to process this that they've seen they notice something else Peter and James and John do and that that is the visitors that come. Mark says in verse 4 that there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Once again, Mark 
just sort of puts that out there very briefly. The other gospel writers are also very brief. As the three disciples here look on, Jesus is joined by two of the the greatest Old Testament figures, Elijah and Moses. How do they know who they are? Well, I would venture to say that because this is a heavenly visitation, that heavenly rules are in play here, and so they just know. And again, notice the language here. It says that they appeared. They were present. Again, this is not a vision. This is not a dream. This is reality. The big question here is, why Elijah and Moses? Why are they the ones? Some have said, and this is true, that Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets. Which is partly so... Although you would think that of all the prophets, if, if they were going to choose a, if God was going to choose a representative of the prophets, Elijah is kind of an odd choice, uh, just as a representation. He didn't write anything, um, no prophecy like Isaiah or Jeremiah. Also, be, because Moses, though he is certainly associated with the law of God, He was the lawgiver. He was the mediator of the law of the Old Covenant. And in a sense, then, the the Moses and the law and Elijah and the prophets is true, and we'll see that in just a second here. But also, Moses is almost equally well-known as a prophet himself. In fact, Moses is the forerunner, the type of the prophet who God had prophesied was going to come. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses writes, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command them. Of course, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. But here's Moses as the prototypical prophet. But Elijah and Moses are mentioned together in one passage in the Bible. It was our Old Testament reading this morning. And it's the final prophecy of the Old Testament. In Malachi 4, as the prophets of Israel conclude their writings, as the final utterance of God before that 400 years of silence where God does not speak, before sending Jesus... Malachi wrote this, and again, this was from our reading this morning. He says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Elijah and Moses' appearance here on the mountain of transfiguration together with Jesus hooks Jesus to these prophecies. 
connects Jesus with this redemptive plan of God throughout the whole of the Old Testament. From Moses, back in the early books of the Old Testament, through Elijah, to the prophecy of Malachi. He, Jesus, is the fulfillment of the promise of God through Moses that God would send a prophet like Moses to his people in those last days and that they should listen to him. Jesus fulfills the work that Moses began. He fulfills the work that Elijah began and fulfills what they typified, what they prefigured as the consummate prophet of God. And by the way, Luke helps us answer one of the questions that is often burning in our minds as we read this little short section here about Elijah and Moses coming and, and talking to Jesus. Do you ever wonder what they're talking about? What was their discussion? Well, if you are, Luke gives us the answer to that. Luke says that they spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They're talking about those things that are going to take place. As Jesus has now begun from up there in Caesarea Philippi, he's going to begin his, his trek down south, which will take him eventually to Jerusalem, where he will be crucified. Another amazing part of this, as these visitors come and, and they see them, Peter and James and John see them speaking with Jesus. And it calls for a response, doesn't it? And in response to what he saw, Peter steps forward. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Poor Peter. He is one of those like many of us, who believe that it is better to say something rather than to say nothing, even if it's not really the right thing to say. In fact, we're told there in verse 6 why he says what he did, because he didn't know what to say. And they were terrified. I, I can see that. But at, as at other times, Peter's intentions here are good ones, perhaps. It is good that, that they, he and James and John, are there as eyewitnesses to what Jesus is revealing here, but Peter thinks that it is good for them to be there so that they can serve this august trio of personalities. And interestingly, as he proposes this action, he seems to make the mistake, the category error of lumping Jesus in with Moses and Elijah. His thought is, is perhaps that this state of affairs on the mountain now, after everything else that they've heard, after everything else that he's seen, that this state of affairs was maybe to be a permanent situation. Or maybe he's making efforts to make it a permanent situation. Once again, perhaps seeking to keep Christ from the, the horrific predictions that Jesus has made about what's going to happen if they go to Jerusalem or when they go to Jerusalem. Perhaps he's again trying to see and to preserve the glory without 
those nasty bits about suffering and death. And so he says, let's enshrine this group here. Let's give them somewhere to dwell here on this mountain. Let's make these tents, these booths, these shelters. That could be what Peter's thinking. Now, uh, to be upfront, that's speculation. We're not told exactly what Peter was thinking, except for the fact that we're told that he's not really thinking. He's just saying something because it seems like something seems, needs to be said. It is interesting here that there comes no rebuke from Jesus as Peter proposes this. And if the three disciples were terrified by seeing Jesus transfigured and now seeing Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus, they are about to be, to use Isaiah's words, undone because of the fourth thing that we read here, the voice from heaven. Verse 7 says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. See, there on the mountain now, a cloud covers the group. And they know, Peter and James and John, they know that this is not just a weather phenomenon. But this is a traditional manifestation of the glory of God. Exodus 19, verse 8, says that Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. Exodus 40, verse 34, says that then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud that settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 1 Kings 8.10 says that when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Uh, one more from the prophets, Ezekiel 10, 3. It says, Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud. And the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And we could give more examples of this that a cloud is the traditional manifestation of the glory of God. And as those verses also show, especially Exodus 19.8, it is out of such a cloud that God would often speak to his people. And he does so here. In verse 7, notice, speaking not to Jesus, the words that he says he had said to Jesus earlier after Jesus' baptism, but here he is not saying it to Jesus. He's not saying it to Moses or Elijah. In fact, they know this all too well. But he's speaking to Peter and James and John. And 
through Mark's record to you and I today. And he says, this is my beloved son. The voice of God from heaven, from the the cloud, says, this is my beloved son. The voice from heaven confirming the point as only the voice of God can, placing the exclamation point on this event. Now remember, the apostles, they were not there at Jesus' baptism. They didn't hear when God spoke from heaven at that point. But now they hear the confession. They've heard the confession of Peter just a few days, six days before they heard it. They've heard in the past, we've seen it, even the confession of the demons that Jesus cast out as they said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They've heard that confession, but now they hear the confession of the Ancient of Days. The confession of God, the confession of Yahweh, who has come down to speak to them. This one, this Jesus, he is my son. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah. And then these words that necessarily follow from that truth and which, beloved, this morning we do well to heed. He says, listen to him. In the prophecy of the the prophet like Moses, from back in Deuteronomy 15, Moses said that that God would raise up a, a prophet like me from among you. He said then, it is then, it is to him you shall listen. This is the message here to Peter and to James and to John and to each one of us this morning. Jesus is my son. Listen to Jesus. He speaks the word of God. He is the word of God. As Peter said, Jesus has the words of eternal life. Beloved, let us listen to him in all that he promises in all that he assures, and in all that he commands. And with that, and suddenly, Mark tells us in verse 8, this event, so glorious, so wonderful, unique in all of human history, is concluded. Verse 8 says, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So what's going on in the transfiguration and the things that are going on here as part of it? What's the purpose? What are the connections being made? We saw earlier this connection with the final prophecy in Malachi 4. But I think Mark is is signaling something as he records this for us. Remember, every word of Scripture is inspired by God through the, the authors that he used, that the Spirit moved on. Mark wants to bring something to the minds of those who are reading it. And the initial readers would catch this. People who knew their Old Testament, who were steeped in it, they would catch these things. But let me draw your attention just to several statements in Mark's record of this event. In verse 2, he mentioned that this was after six days. So six days. He mentioned that it's up a high mountain. In verse 3, that his clothes became radiant. 
Verse 3 speaks of Moses. Verse 7 says a cloud overshadowed them. Verse 7 says a voice came out of that cloud. And verse 7 says, listen to him. Now, we have already seen in Mark's gospel and mentioned it at a few points along this theme, one of Mark's themes, the theme of a second exodus. We've seen the the connections that Mark draws between the ministry of Christ and the ministry of Moses in bringing out of bondage a people of God. Now, of course, we know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus is far superior to Moses as we look at these things. But let me then draw your attention after looking at those those snippets. Let me draw your attention to a couple of passages from the book of Exodus. And we'll see some of the the flags, some of the, the hooks that Mark has included in our reading this morning that if we think of the Old Testament... That, that as we read Mark's record here, that it will bring to mind, as it would certainly have done for those who were the original readers. The first is in Exodus chapter 24. And you can either turn there real quick or just listen. I'm going to go quickly here. Moses is about to be given the, the law by God in person on, well, a high mountain. And in that record, in Exodus 24, God calls Moses up to a high mountain. Mount Sinai in that case. Moses takes his servant Joshua on the trip. And when Moses went up the mountain, we read that the cloud covered the mountain and that the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it, guess how long? Six days. And that God spoke to Moses then out of the midst of the cloud. The appearance of God's glory, we also read, was like a devouring fire. See, again, to the people who knew the Old Testament, those things are going to, as Mark says them, it's going to remind them of those passages. In Exodus 34, 29, after God has given Moses the law, when Moses comes down and and unaware to Moses that he had been, after he'd been speaking with God, that his face was shining. The mediator of the Old Covenant's face was shining because of his encounter with God. And whenever Moses had been speaking with God, the skin of his face was shining, so much so that he had to put a veil on his face. Now, as we hear these things, don't be trying to tie everything exactly back to something that happened, right? Moses is not Jesus. Jesus' face shines because of his own glory. Moses is shown because he had been in the company of God, And he was reflecting God's glory. But these are just flags that would stick in their mind and say, oh yeah, remember that. Finally, Exodus 33, 18. You know this passage. Moses says to God, God, show me your glory. And God says, I will. I will make all of my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and live. And when Moses goes up on the mountain, we read that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and spoke to him and proclaimed the name of the Lord, the glory of God. So the language, just in those three passages, the language that Mark relates and those verbal conceptual ties with those Old Testament passages, specifically Moses and his work, show us that what we have here in Mark 9 in the Transfiguration is nothing less than a theophany. 
a physical manifestation of God. In fact, it's a double theophany, isn't it? God the Father speaks His glory is the, is the cloud, manifested in the cloud, is on the mountain. And not just God the Father, but God the Son is there, proclaimed as such by the voice of God. The Lord Jesus Christ in his unveiled glory is there. Another thing that's interesting to note is that both Moses and Elijah, who are here in Mark 9, had encountered God and his glory on the top of mountains. Moses at Sinai, we just looked at, Elijah at Mount Horeb in the past, and now they've done it again. They have encountered God on this mountain, on this day. Now for the disciples, these events which go by so quickly and are so just overpowering to them, they are only going to be recognized, they're only going to be appreciated and integrated into their faith after time, and after reflection, which is often true for us, which is a reason that you should take time to reflect on sermons that you hear every Sunday. But to them, it did have a serious effect that lasted long after this. Peter himself will, in the most explicit way, give voice to this. When he writes his own epistle later, and in Second Peter Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we read this from the lips of Peter, from the pen of Peter. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his grandeur. He says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We were there. We didn't make this up. These aren't some fables that we came up with. We were there. We heard it. We saw it. It's interesting that he goes on right from that point and talks about how we have the prophetic word made more sure through the scriptures themselves. And we, beloved, this morning have encountered once again the voice of God through those words and are ourselves reminded that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. Let us then worship Him in all that we do. Let us worship Him recognizing who He is. And let us recognize or let us worship Him until that day when we will all be changed, when we will all be transfigured. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when Christ returns. Because at that time, John says, we will be made like him. For we on that day will join Peter and James and John, and we will see him as he is. Let us look forward to that day, and let us say, Amen. Our Father, we thank you for this glorious event. We thank you for the meaning of it. We thank you for the weight of it. We thank you for, 
for the fact that it shows us Christ so plainly, so gloriously. Lord, help us to reflect on this, Father, and may we worship him always. And we ask it in his name. Amen.